is Twitter. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with an old friend of mine, Mr. Michael Rubin. We're gonna talk about his current project, one of the projects, well, he's got probably a ton of projects that he's working on, but one that I have in my hot little hands here is The Photographed as Haiku. This is a brand new book that he published. So I want to talk about the book and the impetus behind the book and all those good things, but also the publishing industry and all that. And where does it sit today? Is it still does it still have the weight and the gravity that it did say 10 years ago when it was all about getting your name in the byline on a book or has it changed? So Michael Rubin is the perfect person to have that conversation with. Mr. Rubin, how you doing, man? Look at you hanging out there. I'm good, Fred. <laughs> so good to see you. And you really need to come hang out out here. It'll be fun. It'll be nice. Oh, yeah, but, you're new. Yeah. You're you are. We were talking in the green room before we started recording. You are in New Mexico, which is um, based on your description of that place on the planet. It sounds amazing. So I may have ah, to come out there and visit. Is. You say they have this thing called seasons. What are those? Yeah, like four of them. Four, four? and they're the same length. Think about that. That's so. That's weird. amazing. That's four amazing. People. I don't even know how to process that after California, which has like one and a half and whatever. But yeah, you well, gotta come out. And I'm well, glad you got California to though. Yeah, I'm I'm coming and, and sorry to interrupt you, but California, you you had a store, um, a, a shop in California, you've called Neo Modern, and we, there's an interview in this week in photo with you in that store. Um, and we did kind of a walkthrough, I think a physical walkthrough of me in the store. Yeah. You know, you were yeah. really passionate about it, as you are with all the things and all the businesses that you start. Take us just really briefly through the transition piece of why why is Neo Modern no more and where are you now, like business wise? Sure, sure. Neo Modern, I mean, it was really a passion project, but I just felt that, you know, people, everyone had a smartphone, everyone's got a camera of some sort. And, uh, you know, as a collector, as a photographer, I really felt that the printing part of the equation was super important and mm -hmm. you couldn't just like press print on your computer and get a print um, i wanted to give consumers access to high-end tools archival printing archival framing professional print master who can really use lightroom and photoshop to help your pictures those are things that you know while software makes all that stuff easier i thought that it would be cool to have a, a really upscale place dedicated to photography that people could kind of walk into with their phone and come out with great photography and you know after three years of doing that which was you know like i said a passion project it was just about as a business to be sort of break even which is you know it's always a hard retail i've done a bunch of retail stuff and like to get to that point i'm just cresting and then COVID hit and i you know i just lost the or the will <laughs> you know i yeah. just wanted to do something that was okay just get back to photography and not not all that so you know leaving san francisco was a big deal i kind of thought i would spend the rest of my life there uh, my family was from san francisco originally mm -hmm. um but my brother had moved to santa fe new mexico 30 years ago and i'd always visited here and it's the number two or number three art town in the u.s and i knew of the santa fe photographic workshops i knew that uh, that there are great photographic publishers in santa fe and that people People come here for art so i thought santa fe you know mm -hmm. let's try it out yeah. why not why not and so yeah. that's what happened 
So right in the middle of COVID, I uh, pulled up stakes, got everything out of storage that had been in storage for a decade and came here and have set up house shop and uh, it's fantastic. You know, I've been teaching yeah. and, uh, and so that's, that's what got me here. And, and I suppose it's kind of a segue into the book. Should I just roll right into that? Well, yeah. Well, I want to segue. I want to. We're going a little bit out of order here, but I want to segue into a little bit of your history for the folks that may not have heard of Michael Rubin and all the amazing things that you've done. Um, give us the Reader's Digest elevator. You're trapped in an elevator with a with an investor, and you got five minutes to tell them what you do. What do you say? Well, you know, I, I mean, I've had a couple different phases of career, and one phase was sort of publishing, you know, independent publishing. My mom was a was an independent publisher. That's how I got introduced both to computers and to publishing as a kid. And um, so I, I wrote a bunch of books, funny books back in the day. Uh, and, and then I landed at Lucasfilm right after college at, at the computer division that at the time um, was sort of undifferentiated, but became Pixar and um, and then this other group, the DroidWorks, which was inventing basically digital audio workstations and, and nonlinear editing system. And it was a pioneering spot. And so that was a great formative experience. And then for 10 years, I was like the nonlinear guy. I was yeah. really invested in that technology. I knew it was going to replace film and I wanted to be a part of that. And so I did that and edited movies and television for a while. And then I, because I'm an educator sort of and publisher at heart, I wrote a book sort of teaching people how to make films using the computers and, and the book was nonlinear, which came out in 1990. And, and then I did a bunch of editions over the next 10 years and Hollywood converted to cell, from celluloid to digital. And so that was good. And then somewhere in there, um, Jennifer had this idea for business and I joined her in building what became Petroglyph, which is the contemporary ceramics studio industry where people paint bisque ceramics and then we'd fire them. And that became sort of a national thing. And I, I ran that company for a long time. And then somewhere in there, I wrote this book on Lucasfilm and the creation of Pixar, Droid Maker. Yes. And, uh, and on the heels of that, because I just thought someone would tell the story by then. But by 2005, no one had written about it. And people know about Xerox Park. People know about a lot of tech places. But they didn't know that Lucasfilm was the progenitor of so much cool stuff. After the book... Um, it was a lot of years. I've been doing a lot of years of helping raise the kids and writing books at home for consumers. And finally, I joined like a real company, and that was Netflix. And, um, you know, that became a big thing. And, I, you know, I learned product development and business in a way that I hadn't before. And I did that for a while. And then a um, bunch of startups and then landed at Adobe. Um, yep. innovating new tech, not new products at Adobe with the research group. And that led to Neo Modern, and that led to here. But all wow. through that entire story, I've been taking pictures. I grew up in a household f where my parents were collecting photography, and I had a dark room, and I took pictures all the time. And I wanted to be a photographer, but my parents really urged me to get a normal job. And to do the photography is something just because I loved it and not as something to try to make a living. So I have. So I've been taking pictures for 40, 50 years and, uh, and just for the love of it. And that's what kind of gets me here. That's amazing. Thanks for, thanks for, for putting that out there because that's the, 
you know, one of the one of the pillars of this conversation is is the publishing side of it. And I wanted you to kind of describe the storied background that you have. And you kind of rolled over it, but there's a lot there. I mean, you are you you're like the the Forrest Gump in the creative industry in a lot of ways. <laughs> like, like here's Ruben. There's Ruben right there standing behind Jobs. Wait, there's Ruben at Adobe. He's at Netflix. Look. <laughs> I have had a good opportunity to witness a lot of really cool things in Silicon Valley and Hollywood. Yeah. And luckily I had my camera for a lot of it, but it's never, like I said, it's never been a job. It's just been yeah. something I love doing. And that's that's the key, right? And which is why I wanted you to go through that to to explain that, oh, this is just some random person that's on the podcast talking about his his haiku book, right? You this is yeah, this is yeah. probably something you, you wrote while you're standing in line at uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Like, let me, let me push this book out, you know, let me get this. I had this in my heart. Let me just make this real quick as a side project, you know, amongst my other 300 projects. Um, no, but this that's one, a, I got to say, I'm passionate. I'm passionate about this one in a way that I haven't been about a lot of projects, yeah. because in a sense, for me, it's the culmination of my career. And uh, and that's like, it's a weird thing. Like what like what's my real contribution in the world is thing, you know, you think about as you get older and I didn't think it was going to be what I built at Netflix or Adobe. I, I wasn't sure it was going to be the ceramic stuff. But photography is a place that I really felt like I had a a lot of understanding and mm-hmm. um, a new understanding. And so that's that's what the book was. It was it's a it was an epiphany of understanding what photography is about. So I had to write it. You know, I just, yeah. it didn't exist. And yeah. that's usually where the books come from. Just well, take they... us through it. Take us through the book. So, you know, it, it's called The Photograph as Haiku for Students, Poets, and Photographers by M.H. Rubin. So, yeah, that one. Yep, there we go. Matching yeah. books there. Thanks for sending us uh, over. We have a matching set. Yeah. Mine's better. Mine's better. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah. so here's, yeah. the, go for here, it. here's the thinking. Here's the thinking. Yeah. Um, I, you know, like I said, I grew up educated by the classics of photography, Ansel Adams, yeah. Imogen Cunningham, you know, George Tice, Weston, whatever. And they, you know, I learned photography just by being around all these pictures. And um, I think slowly as I took pictures, I began to sort of emulate the pictures that I grew up with, or at least the ones I liked that I grew up with. And I really believed that you couldn't describe what you were doing. It just was something that comes to you. Some people have it and some people don't. And I I was comfortable with that. But I wondered, you know, I am doing something. I am, you know, all these pictures have something in common. But I I think the best way I could describe it for, for decades was that if you just look at enough great photographs, understanding photography will happen as like an emergent property of looking at them. It doesn't, it, it goes past words. It doesn't fit any rules that you could write down, but just look at these pictures. And I'd actually picked out 50 pictures that I grew up with and I called them the 50. And I told people when I would teach or lecture somewhere, I'd say, go look at these pictures. That's all you got to do. And no, no one can explain it to you. So that worked for a while. And then I saw, you know, I remember learning about the rule of thirds and thinking, that's so weird. I have been around photographers, some of the greatest photographers in history, and I've grown up around this, and no, it's never come up. No one has ever said anything about that. Mm. How is it possible it's such a fundamental way that people teach photography, and yet nobody, zero people I knew who were professional photographers actually 
embraced it in that way. They, they say the same thing. You learn it, then you forget it because you'll do your own thing. And I thought that was kind of a marginal way to teach photography, like learn that and you, you'll just get kind of get it. So everything was just floating along fine. And then in the late 90s, I was given this book on haiku. In fact, I was given this book on haiku. And uh, it's just, it's sort of classic works by the, the old masters of haiku. And as I'm sort of doing it, I was taking pictures. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, my pictures are like haiku. And I'd say that, but I was being sort of an idiot because I didn't really know a lot about haiku. Um, it just, to me, it meant that they were little poetic, <laughs> they're like little poetic, poetic flourishes. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and I liked calling them haiku because it, I'm so judgmental about other photographer work that allowed me to live with that judgment instead of saying, I don't like that photographer. I don't like that photograph. I could just say, oh, it's a different poetic form. Like mine is a haiku and yours is a limerick, you know? Uh, so it's not like I like it or don't like it. It's just a different form. And that gave me a certain kind of peace. But really it didn't mean anything. I was using the term kind of loosely, but what happened was I started reading criticism of haiku uh, deeper and deeper. I'd read everything I could on haiku. And I found this really strange thing, which, which was you could take the word haiku out of these, these essays and put in the word photograph or photography and it almost perfectly described what I was doing when I took pictures, what I was thinking about when I took pictures. And I thought that was really weird. And I went back and started looking at the 50 that I was showing people. And I realized that these 50 pictures really illustrated haiku principles. And I thought that's insane. And so more and more as I got into this, I realized that, that I could teach haiku things that photographers when they, if they do take a class, if they do learn something, they're just sort of these willy nilly ideas and they're vague. Like they might even be like leading lines and issues of, of composition, but the, but looking, applying the rules of haiku to your photography gave you different levers to pull on, to think about how to make a picture. And so even if you're not trying to make a haiku, you have a different set of axes to divide up photography by and they are practicable they are teachable and they are hard to do or some are easy but um it was really a concrete way to talk about photography that had never been done and i didn't think that i i wasn't like making it up i was just noticing the rules of haiku are the rules of haiku and my pictures are my pictures and somehow after 40 years of doing it i realized i was making these haiku so that's what it was. And I'd written a long book about it, like a textbook, and thought, you know, a haiku would be much simpler. <laughs> a haiku yeah. would be almost unusually simple. And so like one night, uh, almost in, in, in October, I just sat down and said, I think I can do this as like, like a little simple textbook that explains the rules of haiku and illustrates it. And that's what, that's what I did. That's what this became. And I just, I, I pounded it out. And I wanted to get it in at least the students that took my workshops. I wanted it in their hands. But as I did it, I thought this should be for anybody who's interested in photography, high school kids, um, yeah. parents, any hobbyist. In fact, the only people that probably wouldn't you know, be entertained by it were be professionals who have a career and they do what they do and they don't need to think about it at all. But 
a lot of like Instagram photographers who are friends who might have millions of followers plateau. Like at mm -hmm. some point they hit this existential moment of like, why am I doing this? And like, what's the point? Why like another beautiful this mm -hmm. and uh, haiku changes it up. It makes the practice. It gives you some things to work on and it, it almost begins when you're already good. So that's, that's what, what, that's what it is. And I'm happy to break down any of the ideas in there, but that's the, the overarching story of how that came to be. That's great. And, and that's what I teach. And you, and you, you know, based on what you said, so you were, you know, gifted with, with, even though you didn't even know of having a, a certain way of shooting and a mindset around your shooting that then revealed itself later, like, oh, I see patterns in the chaos. That must be what I'm all, all about. Right. right. So you're right about that. Uh -huh. um, many people aren't that lucky, though. Many people just kind of go through or creatives in whatever genre or art form go through it, just kind of either copying other people or saying, I'm going to embrace and extend that or, you know, or I'm just not good at all. You know, um, how do they how do they get that? Right. So what you what you described is kind of a lattice work. Right. So you have a lattice work mm -hmm. that is gives you a little bit of structure and then you plant your own seeds and it grows on that lattice work. But within the confines of that 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 structure yeah. that you put together. So how, how would you recommend other people get that lattice work? Well, I think the I mean, other than just sort of getting the book and practicing it yourself. Yeah, I, I can give you some examples of these things. So uh, imagine a continuum for any photograph and it goes between uh, moment and object. OK, those are two extremes that I could take a picture of a rock right? Here's a rock or here's a thing. And think about how many pictures are just an object fundamentally. Now, mm -hmm. of course, every photograph is a combination of moment and object because the way the camera works, but you can feel when something is primarily this object on the other extreme photos are moments. It's like you, like it couldn't have been taken by another person a second later. You know, it's just the fleeting way of the world. Right. And if yeah. you're standing next to me and I see something and I take a picture, there's no way you're going to get that same picture that that's a measure of something being a, a, a moment. That's something that a camera is uniquely capable of doing, of like capturing these moments. So while I don't make a judgment about moment to object um, and certainly object photos, when they're done beautifully, are showing us something in a new way are showing us something we haven't seen before. But but still, it's still a, an object. A haiku is more moment than object. Okay, mm, it, mm -hmm. it, it it is about the fleeting nature of time and the transience of time. So, so as an a way to remember that, I would say, you know, haiku photos are more moment than object. And now I can look at any picture and say it's not whether it's good or bad, but I can say, oh, that's very object or that's very moment, <laughs> you know? And if I'm teaching a class, I can say, that's a great object picture. Can you move it more towards a moment? What would you do to capture something that's more fleeting about that? Like, mm -hmm. of course, the sun going down or rain falling makes it sort of a moment, but is that moment enough? So there's no right or wrong, but that is a lever that in any photographer learning photography can practice and become cognizant of as they look at photographs. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It, what you're, what I'm hearing a lot of is story, right? We talk about that a lot when we're we're critiquing photos. You know, what's the story? Who's the hero of this shot? Or what's this? It's what are you not, trying to tell me? No, it's yeah. not well, a story. Yeah. It's not, elaborate. 
it's not it's a different way to, to people do say you want a picture that has a story in it but mm -hmm. I, but it's hard to say what makes a story i find that moment to object is a better way to teach it because it's hard for someone to come up with a story but it isn't hard to capture a moment you know to capture something that's more fleeting mm -hmm. um you need all of these elements together to make a haiku but these are the the pieces of it um another for instance another thing that is a haiku is that it's um almost unnaturally simple right it's got five seven five lines they're very formal they have a kind of formality to them so photographs can be simple or or visually complicated you know that's another continuum you can you can work on mm -hmm. and it can be formal or kind of chaotic right in in terms of composition so if you again can look at a photograph and say hmm it's it's too formal it feels stiff oh that's too chaotic that fe doesn't feel like i i really put everything everywhere i wanted to there's a place in between those two where it's the right level of format, kind of naturally, you know, organically formal, <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. same with simple. But it, and so the work of a photographer in this, in this domain is, okay, here's the thing I'm taking a picture of, whether it's a moment or object, but how can I simplify the visual noise of the, the image? You know, can I use depth of field and shutter speed and lighting and all this other stuff, all my Color, skills yeah. as a photographer to move around and simplify the frame that I'm shooting? That is another kind of work that a student can do that anybody can do. They look at their pictures and say, it's a fine picture. And I'd say, it's great. Can There's a lot of noise. There's my eyes. I can feel my eye pulling all over the place. Can you simplify it somehow? So mm -hmm. these are really and there's like nine attributes of the haiku but he, again even if you're not making a haiku which is sort of all of them you can play around with making your pictures more simple or making things more object or more moment as you want those are and your pictures will be better when you have that kind of control that conscious control over what you're putting in the frame as a as an educator where does or where do alternative aside from the still two-dimensional photograph, where does that play into all this or does it? You know, for example, you know, you have a, a background in video and motion and all those things, um, but should, should photographers be leaning into that world or the world of motion or animation or multimedia, you know, all the things to tell that story or to tell that haiku or to build that look or theme? Or should they stick to the two-dimensional photo because there's a lot there, like you mentioned, you know, compositional elements, all the things, right? There's a lot. I would say that uh, I wouldn't dictate what a photographer should or shouldn't do. If you're a yeah. certainly if you're a professional photographer and your objective is to capture a moment and to share it, uh, you're a journalist or you're covering something or you're, it's your, you know, you're, you're being hired to deliver the goods, right? Mm -hmm. And so you need to, I would say you need to be a master of all kinds of media, video stills and have good compositional sense and storytelling sense. And, and, and you can't escape that. But a haiku is um, a specific container. It's purposefully constrained because there's infinite stuff you can do. 
Um, I, I would think of a lot of the Zen arts of which uh, I refer to a lot when you go through this stuff, um, like art, Zen archery or um, flower arranging at Cabana. You know, mm -hmm. you can you can do a ton. You can do too much. And it's nice to be an art form that is constrained. It's it's I, I think the time has come that photography is changing and uh, it's no longer the utilitarian thing that it was for the past hundred years, where it was the only way we, we could communicate. Going forward, we have a million ways to communicate, uh, tons of ways to capture information and share it. So to make a still image is purposefully constrained. You're constraining yourself beyond what is necessary. You could do a ton more to communicate more, which is what makes it into a sort of a poetic form. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're, yeah. you're, you're accepting that I don't, you know, I'm not going to shoot video. I need to pick one frame. I need to make that decision because that's my practice, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's the other reason why it's nice to think of it as a poetic form. And I like to think of it as a Zen art because it's, it's past its utilitarian phase. I mean, maybe you could argue it's still on the edge now, but over the next, you know, decade, you won't need to have a still, a still image is going to seem remarkably quaint and a little <laughs> antiquarian and yet like calligraphy, you know, people do calligraphy. We don't need calligraphy like we used to. It used to be just good writing, you know, That's right. That's and right. yeah. going to, it's going to get into that space that, that I'm doing this on purpose. I'm, I'm constraining myself on purpose because it is, that's where the art is. You know, that, that, that brings up another question and you're the perfect person to, to ask this or point this question at, but photography, you know, the photography or still photography as an art form right now, a lot of photographers are nervous today, right? A lot of copywriters are nervous today, you know, you know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so, I mean, should, should, should photographers and for the folks that don't know what I'm, I'm being coy about is artificial intelligence and, you know, these image generation models where you oh, give it words it. and it makes yeah. something or you just tell a chat application write me a presentation and it just spits out mm -hmm. an outline for you um in the future or even now how how much weight should photographers put on let's just look at just take separately the text to image generation artificial intelligence models should they care about that mm -hmm. for example i could take your book right and take mm -hmm. a haiku out of your book and plug it into mid journey and see what comes I, I out i have done that I, you I have. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm all over this stuff. Um, okay. But I think it further makes the case that the image, the end result is uh, if you're a professional or you're, you know, you've written an article and it needs to be illustrated and you don't happen to have a picture, you don't have the money to go hire a photographer or any of that, you can illustrate it. And, mm -hmm. and that is great. Photography has become a lot of illustration. Uh, again, that's why I push back from all of that and say, I need to be purposely constrained. It, it has to be about catching a moment, a real moment. <laughs> it has to be printed. You know, it has to yeah. be an object that is created from this thing. And like a lot, you know, there's a Japanese form called Enso where they draw these circles with paintbrushes, right? Mm -hmm. It's a practice. And you do this thing and there's a, we could talk all day about it. But the point is, if I could take a computer and make one, 
it's missing the point. It, the goal isn't to have a really nice and social any more for me than it's not great to have a, just a perfect photograph. It, the point is, can I get it? <laughs> can I get it in the constraints of really seeing it and catching it in the moment? And that is a self-imposed sort of rule. It, it, so as a practice, of course, you're not going to use artificial intelligence. As a career person in publishing and media and communications, if that was my job, you better get good at that stuff because it's another, it's just Photoshop. It's just a super advanced Photoshop where if something isn't right, you fix it. Uh, if you yeah. need it to be a different way, you make it. And I would be concerned if I was a photographer in the commercial world because magazines and and online media and stuff are going to increasingly use those things and not hire people, you know, they're just going to do it. So, and, and I would also add that it's not, it doesn't stand alone. You don't just tell the computer what to do and it gives you a thing and you're done. Like it's, it's its own sort of skill learning how to get the prompt right. And probably using that just to generate pixels that you could then take into a program where you can actually tweak them more exactly. You yeah, know what I mean? It can get you very far in the same way that the desktop computer, you know, 50 years ago took someone who was typing and, you know, if you were a good typist, you were got a lot of money because that was a good skill to have. And suddenly if you're a crappy typist, but you can spell check and fix it in post, no one knows the difference. That's and right. it really opens up the world to a career as a writer when you wouldn't have been back when it was just typewriters. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So I think there's going to be people who are photographers or who are photographic artists of various kinds, and that will be implicit. You know, people will not care whether it was real or not. They just want a great picture for the cover. And that's why I make haiku, because it yeah. would never, nothing about haiku would do. It's antithetical to what making a photographic haiku would be. Yeah, so that's, that's why I, I'm comfortable in that space. Yeah, you know, um, one of the one of the things that that kind of, there's a bunch of notes here. We're we're not going to have time to get through all my notes. I'm <laughs> making a bunch of notes, um, but uh, you know, I'm come curious about. Yeah, I know. We need to come and just sit down and record this. But you know, looking at the the two, there's multiple directions that this AI stuff could go in, right? Some of which you you highlighted. But looking at it from two broad stroke directions, there's the what we're all the hubbub is about right now, which is, you know, text to image and it's sourcing other images in some cases and all the legalities around that and all the things. But the other side of it, which I'm going to see if you if you're bullish on this or if you think this is science fiction, like I can imagine a world where instead of me sitting down and we both worked at Adobe, right? So instead of me sitting down at Photoshop, or maybe this is a future version of Photoshop, um, sitting down in front of this image editing application and remembering how to do this and frequency separations here and Gaussian blurs here and Bezier paths to do this and all the things. What if I could just sit back and say, yeah, I got this great portrait I shot of Michael Rubin. You know what? Uh, darken the background a little bit. Uh, you know what? I need to. I want, what does he look like if he was if he didn't have a beard? No, I'll put the beard back on. You know those those kind of changes where you're talking to the computer interactively and making photorealistic changes to reality versus creating sure. something from a whole cloth. Do you think that's a possibility? Oh, totally, absolutely. I, I think it's going to be, um, and, and I th that works a lot in Photoshop even now. 
uh, give me a base photo. Take the picture of Fred. Let's get it in the computer. It's I'm a good photographer, meaning I got good dynamic range here. It's a good mm -hmm. workable raw file because I'm, you know, I'm not an idiot. I know I've got to manipulate it and I need as much data as I can get. Maybe I overexpose it because it gives me better depth in the darks, so whatever it is. Then I take it into my Photoshop AI, uh, which we've obviously just invented. And yes. um, <laughs> yeah, you're gonna, you, you might not, maybe journalistic ethics would say, well, I'm not gonna take off Ruben's beard, but I'm gonna say like, oh, uh, I would like to move the thing behind him to the left and let's darken the room a little bit. You know what? Let's put him in front of his house. Like, mm -hmm. I think that would look good. And let's get the lighting match on him that's the same on the trees. Things, mm -hmm. you know, so again, it's like um, spell checker. It's like you don't have to know what we used to have to know in Photoshop about how to draw masks and how to, you know, affect all these layers and keep track of them has just been simplified to a point that I can just say what I want and keep trying it till I get it. And that's just going to open up more people to being able to do this, right? Yeah. It's not yep. going to, uh, you know, I don't think you would start by um, not having a picture of me and you just say, oh, find Ruben on the internet and let's make him look like uh, an old man and put him in front of a house. Like, right. I don't know that it'll go that far, but maybe it will. But yeah. it doesn't matter. It's it's just kind of a slippery slope. It's just another, it I don't think you can draw a line between Photoshop regular and Photoshop AI. You know, and in the end, it's just, it's just a, these are all tools, right, to execute whatever vision we had in our heads in the first place. Uh, I, you know, from tapping into the video side of your brain, right? Can't you see a world where, and I want to get back to the haiku in a second, but can you see a world where we're, uh, you know, I, I went out and I don't know how to edit. You know, I know how to cut. I don't know how to edit, right? So um, I can mess up footage, right? Let's say that. But if I went out and I took a bunch of footage and I dropped it on this AI and I said, you know what, edit this in the style of insert great editor, right? And give me a rough cut of this. Look at all the footage, you know, or maybe give me different versions of it. You know, I need emphasis on this person, character recognition or optical facial recognition or whatever, and make it happen. Give me a good starting point and then I'll go in and tweak it later. That feels sure, like sure. a holy grail for editors, or is it? It does. Well, I, I think, honestly, I want to push this back to photography, but what I think it's mm -hmm. going to do in that situation is that you are shooting video all the time, sort of, or, uh, okay, at, at worst, when you pull out your camera. But you shoot video of me here, or you've got our podcast thing, and from that, it generates sort of a 3D setup of what where I was. It knows what I look like. It knows the room I'm in. And now you can kind of move the camera around. You could have a picture from behind me because, you know, or whatever it can calculate out. You, you might have a little thing and you can just move it in 3D around over here. And now you actually could take the, the little Boba Fett and you're going to move him over to the left a little bit. Like you now have, you created a, a, a set of which I'm an element. And even though you, you didn't do it at the time, you're, the video gives you the capacity to change point of view. This is like the way, you know, animations are made, right? They make a model and then they can move the camera around, move the lighting around. And I think that's going to be more what a certain type of computational photography is going to be. It's going to take video, it's going to make 3D models, and then you can pick how you want to take a picture of that sometime later. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, there's so much. I mean, there, there's so much to talk about. And to, and to bring it back solely into photography, um, the we were talking before about just sort of finding your own visual feel and how you found yours and you didn't, you know, you weren't even aware of it until you started looking at the patterns and the chaos. The, the idea of style, you know, the idea, the idea of being the master of a particular genre or style of photography or developing your own new style in photography. How, as an educator, how important is that? How important is it for me to, to be a photographer that's known for a specific kind of look? Or is it okay, alternatively, to be the jack of all trades, master of some? You know, what, what, what do you <laughs> think? <laughs> well, I, I know that in business, in almost every industry I've seen, um, there's a, a high pressure to pigeonhole everything. Um, if you're a writer and you've written one thing and it's a comedy, um, you're a comedy writer and they're not gonna let you write a drama even though you're like, that would just happen to be the first thing you wrote, right? Right, yeah. Uh, as a photographer, you might find your style and you, you can do lots of things. A lot of things interest you, but something catches fire and suddenly everyone has this expectation that you do those kinds of things and they, they pressure you into doing it. I, that happens to musicians also. Um, Typecasting. So, right, I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's hard to get discovered, right? Like that's the, and I know you really wanted to talk about books and whether they have the gravitas that they used to. Oh, yeah. um, and the, these sort of tie together. You know, it used to be, um, if you had a style that was distinctive, Irving Penn or Robert Frank or whatever, where Joel Meyerowitz, where we can just look at a picture and be like, I bet that's that guy, right? But nowadays, of course, with AI, I can take any photo and say, make it look like a Joel Meyerowitz. <laughs> which is yes you know that's one thing or and so I, i'm not i'm not sure it, it's the same world anymore i mean um i, I think that from st a stylistic thing uh, for professionals they want you to sometimes have a few different things you're capable of if you're a one-trick pony uh, my guess is and i'm not hiring photographers but i'm imagining they're hiring you because they saw something you did and they they want you to do that for them you know yeah. i want one of those um but maybe I'm digressing, but I know how anxious you were to discuss the publishing. It mm -hmm. is different now. It's so easy to make a book. Now, it's still a bar, not, you know, there's, there's a million people who say they want to do a book. And then there's another chunk of people who actually make one. And then there's a layer above that where someone else has decided they want to publish them and make that book. And they're going to spend money on it. And, you know, and sometimes the the ones people self-publish become hits and they last for 50 years and that person makes a lot of money. And sometimes you, you need to be published by someone who's validating you, who has vetted a bunch mm. of photographers and picked your stuff out that they believe in your stuff. But like movie making, like right, like every industry now, if music making, if you wanna if you wanna do it, just do it. And if you're yeah. and it will set you apart. It, but it's not the same as uh, you know, Simon and Schuster publishing that book. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, 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 it has less weight, but it still has more weight than the average person who doesn't have a book. It's, it's just one more distinguishing thing. And hopefully you have a bunch of those. You don't just have one, I guess I would yeah. say. I mean, is it is it is it a good resume bullet? Even if you're self-publishing, you're using you know Lulu or someone, you know, you're self-publishing your own mm -hmm. book. It's a great book, but you self-published it. 
are you then able to like go on CNN, you know, or whatever news outlet and say, hey, this is hey, I'm John Doe, author of the so and so book, you know, that I wrote it's myself it's and published. More about how it's, received. it's probably about how it's received. Like it doesn't yeah. maybe matter who published it if it catches on and it's having affect. Yeah. Um, CNN will, will care. Um, it's not just that you have a book. You know what I mean? But it's mm-hmm. nice. You know, it's, it's something that you can point to. I, I always encourage people to, uh, to make these books. And, and I, over the past 40 years, I think I've got about 13 or 14 books. And I'd say half of them I published myself and half were done by other publishers. Mm-hmm. And that's primarily because when you publish it yourself, you make, you know, 10 times more money per book than you do if someone else is publishing it. And yeah. so if you think you can hit the, if you can reach your audience, if you, because the marketing is the hard part, it's the expensive part. So if you have access to the people who need that book, you probably can publish it yourself. If you think it's a wide release and it, lots of people would like it, then you're sort of screwed and you need someone who handles much bigger things. You make less money per book, but they get out to a lot more people. And for me, I would kind of alternate. I do a book for myself, publish it myself. And then I do one for like Peach Pit. And while they're marketing my book, I can tag along and like, you know, I got mm-hmm. this other book too. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and so for sure. just to keep, keep current, um, you want to keep throwing them back and forth because you make a lot more money with the ones you publish yourself. But it's always gratifying to get that validation of someone promoting your book. And it's not you self-promoting, which is just a horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wonder on that, have the, have the dynamics of the publishing industry changed? Um, Well, everything changes. So that's a, that's a loaded question, but have they, has it changed from, you know, the old days of, Hey, here's a no name person that has a great idea for a book. He wrote a, they write a book proposal, submit it to a publisher, the publisher green lights, it kicks them an advance of, you know, X thousand dollars or whatever that they should make back on their royalties, presumably. Um, and now boom, they write the book and now they're in Barnes and Nobles or wherever and Amazon, you know, they have ISBN number and all that, that flow versus today. I feel like the, the change in that has been that no name author is going to have a harder time selling him or herself to the publisher because they're like, okay, how many followers do you have? You know, are you, right. you have a YouTube channel? Well, no, have you, you must bring your ready built audience to this book in order for us to right. invest in you. Is that, is that accurate? I think that's true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's yeah. like, if you don't have any audience, it's going to be a very uphill kind of battle, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, the thing is like, if you have a, if you have an idea, like if, even the photograph is hike too, I've been working with a, um, a more legitimate publisher for years on this topic. And they wanted a book that was more of a textbook, thicker, hundred pages, 200 pages, because for them to invest their time in promoting it, it has to be a $50 book or a hundred, you know, it has to be more expensive for everyone to make back the money. And yeah. it also is a long process. You know, they, you know, it may be very much what you wrote, but they also may have a lot to say about it. And it's, it can be a very great collaboration, but it also can be very frustrating for a creator. So now a year goes by, they've accepted it, and now they're changing it. And you go through all this stuff, and then maybe when it's finally released, they decide they don't like it and they're not marketing it. And, and you have no recourse. And I think mm-hmm. I've always felt personally that if I – if I'm going to have to wait years to get my idea executed because they believe in it and I'm going to trust that they're going to do all this stuff 
and still they decide not to market it and nothing happens and it dies, I'm going to feel like uh, I made a horrible mistake. I would rather fail on my own, <laughs> you know, yeah. just, you know, uh, to have an idea in October and then hire a designer and work with that person and then execute it. And even though it takes six or seven months to get into Amazon, I can have it available on Lulu while I'm waiting. Mm -hmm. I can have it for my students. I, can, I have an ISBN number. I can start to troubleshoot it. Just like print on demand is an amazing way to troubleshoot your thing. It's like yeah. the first printings were much crappier than the current printing. You know, mm -hmm. updated. Mm -hmm. I look at the physical book and I'm be like, oh, I, I need better paper. Oh, I need to change the. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's iterative. It's like a website, and that's cool because a physical, uh, traditional book publisher gets it as good as they can get it. They work very hard for a very long amount of time. And then it's like, there's that version and it's locked. They print a thousand, it's in a warehouse. And hopefully you got it right the first time. But yeah. I like the iterative process. I like websites and I like self-publishing for figuring I stuff out. I honestly, you know, I'm clearly no expert, but I honestly think the self-publishing route makes a makes much more sense in a lot of ways than than traditional publishing. And I have friends in the publishing industry; they're gonna, you know, yell at me for saying this. But but I I think I think it does for for the reasons that I I kind of highlighted before with the whole audience thing because it's like a cart and a horse. Like, can't get your book published because you don't have an audience, so you build an audience why do I need a publisher now? <laughs> I can just self-publish right. and go out to my right. own audience and keep all the loot myself Then in that world. Where where does the publisher bring value into the occasion? Maybe it's the cachet of having Simon & Schuster on the label, you know, or something on there. Yes. Maybe no, no, that's no, don't it, that. right? That, that cachet is good. That yeah. cachet is important. And the other thing is that they make it, they're more dispassionate than you are. And it's if you're going to do it yourself, you really have to have people who are, if not in charge, are experts at copy editing your stuff, at being a brutal editor with you, uh, a professional designer. Like there are ways, I mean, I went and hired the people who, remember when we were at Peach Pit, all those people mm -hmm. have become freelancers, call them back up and they used to be staff at, at a publishing company and now they're freelance editors and copy editors and designers. Hire them, avail yourself of experts um, it, it, it's, the only difference is they work for you instead of working yeah. for somebody else, but take their advice and don't, if you really just do it yourself, you end up with something that's almost always too self-indulgent and it feels smarmy. I don't know. It yeah. feels something. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's good to have outsiders. Um, but you always get that with self-published stuff and you just have to be able to see past it or, you know, for me, I wanted to just get it out. I just needed it to be available to people. And uh, that was my only objective. It wasn't even about making money. I want this to be taught. I want it to disseminate. And, eat, uh, uh, and honestly, I made a paperback because I thought that would be better for students and realized that kids don't look at even paperbacks. They just have e-books. E and yeah. so I made an e-book. And, and then the hardback is just a collector's thing. That's only for students and fans and stuff like that. You don't need 10,000 of them. You just need 1,000. You, know? you need yeah. a smaller number. Yeah, that's so great, man. That's so cool. Um, and I love chatting with you because you have like this this passion and this energy around the creative space that is just it 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 overflows the bucket, right? I love it. It's like I oh, feel like there's a million things buckets. that are that are on the timeline that you're going to do that you haven't even thought of yet. You know, you have that kind of that kind of uh, positive energy. 
And I did talk about doing this book three, three years ago, I announced on my podcast, I was going to do a book on the topic and it just took that long to, to, I needed that epiphany. I mean, I knew what I was writing about, but it took that moment of how I could visualize how simple it was and do it that way. Um, but yeah, you put yourself out there. I I like committing to things publicly because it makes you do them <laughs> very often. Yeah, you know? or or you know, yeah, I'm I'm kind of on the fence about that because I like I'm the, no. maybe it's the Apple guy in me, right? It's the it's the yeah. Apple employee of you know cr- finally craft greatness behind the scenes and then reveal it to the world later. No, they won't know what hit them. Versus, hey, That's I'm thinking about doing this. <laughs> You know. I, I talk. My brother is like that. My brother is a consummate professional. He's like you. It's like he doesn't want it to come out unless it's really fantastically, yeah. really. And I'm much more like, just get it out, get it done, get it off your plate, get it out there, and then you can fix it later if you need to. I wish I, I like. I'm legitimately wish. It's a character flaw. It's not good. I wish. I wish <laughs> I could do. <laughs> Oh man, you know. Uh, before we end this, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the the education side of your brain. And I know you're doing you know you're in Santa Fe, right? You're doing some stuff with the Santa Fe workshops out there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, let's, I want to talk specifically about the workshops that you're doing. I know you're doing. I think you're doing some online and then some in in the some, flesh. I got, I got one in. That's right. I have one in March that uh, still has a few spots left. I've got an on Zoom uh, through Santa Fe workshops. I've got one this summer in person which has some spots left. And then I have another one this summer in Wisconsin at the, at the wild rice retreats, which cool. is a beautiful place up on Lake Superior. So I'm, you know, uh, you can do it on zoom. You can, I, I can give a one hour lecture and probably get people most of the way there, but the, the workshops end up being critiques where we really kind of work through these levers of object practicing the ways you control your pictures and, and what that does when you start pulling on these different levers. So it's nice to have more time to have an assignment and get like a brutal critique. But the idea to be presented in an hour, you know, I, I give these multiple one hour free lectures all, all the time to photo clubs and companies and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, we hopefully we're, no, like the, the idea that the in-person tactile feel Hey, instructor, I have a question type modality is going away. Do you, you feel like that, especially after the pandemic when everyone's going full on Zoom and everything's virtual and virtual summits, this and workshops and all no. this stuff online? I think that people are hungry to have real life experiences. I mean, that's sort of yeah. the basis, both of neo-modern and petroglyph and all this stuff. It's like mm-hmm. if when I go out, I don't want to just shop or just do this thing. I want to have an experience when I go do something. And And so I think if you were gonna come to Santa Fe or go somewhere cool. It's nice to take a class. It's nice to work with an artist and have that kind of attention. Um, Zoom is just, it lowers the bar to what the the time investment, time and money investment is in deciding if you like this, does it work for you? I, I've had people who have taken the Zoom things or lectures and then show up for an in-person thing because they don't need to hear the idea. They could buy the book and get the idea, but it's really nice to to talk to people who are doing it and look at the critiques. People say they love the critiques. Um, So yeah, I I think people like in person, but it isn't for everyone. It's not like where you start. It used to be the only hope you had to do that. And and now you can ease into it a little bit better. Yeah, I I personally think critiques are the missing link 
in a lot of stuff that happens in the photography world because we you know we're we're bombarded by by this latest camera this new nikon sony canon whatever you got to have it because this photographer is shooting with it that's on all the posters um then post-processing advances there's always something new ai this or this or, there's always something that's taking your attention but away but you never kind you, of a red herring right you know? yeah it, but like, you never we never close the loop though. In, like Right. We never we I, never I, close the loop. The, it's like this, this is all the stuff that you need to shoot. There's a mountain of training online that will teach you how to do all different kinds of things or you can go to workshops, et cetera. But that missing link, the final mile is, OK, you showed me how to do a thing. I did the thing. How did I do? Right. What do I need to change in order to do better? That loop at the end of the road is missing. Right. I completely agree. I completely agree. And there's also this element of, you know, why am I taking pictures? Like have you can show me how to do all this stuff and I can get really good, but good is relative to some metric. What is good? High, a good color fidelity, good resolution is like, or just people love the picture a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and there's always those questions of what makes a photograph good? Why am I taking pictures in the first place? How do I get better when I'm already pretty competent you know it's not that hard at some level yeah. and the cameras are getting better so at the end of the day you can keep teaching me all the skills and getting new equipment but no one ever addresses sort of why we're doing it and how you improve at it so yeah. that's what i'm hoping the the haiku idea gives you a philosophical underpinning from which you can take or leave it but you can at least have some some place to work you know yeah yeah uh, that's that what's for me it's the lattice work yes, that we talked about. Just yeah. yeah, I love it. Well, let's let's leave it right there. If people want to connect with you, they want to take a workshop, they want to get this book, they want to find out. They yeah, just want to look at your work. Where where's your Rome that all roads lead to? I think to? the key spot would be to go to neomodern.com. I kept the domain even though cool. the business closed. I just I already had people using it, and I kind of liked the idea of it. So if you go there now, it's it's just the photo workshops. It talks about them. Um, you can read, you know, things people have said about them. And then there's the, the latest classes are always listed there. And then there are links to my medium and to my portfolio and, and other kinds of things there. And you can get the book there too. So I would, I would direct people to neomodern.com and then just sort of poke around there. And, and you're still podcasting too, are you, or are you? Still podcasting, everyday photography, every day. And, you know, we just talk to photographers about, you know, the stuff. You know, the stuff, the stuff that we all love yeah. and love to talk about. Yeah, I know. I find people I like on Instagram who don't I don't know whether they have a following or not, but I just think they're really good. And I, I feel like we should talk with that person. Like, what are they doing? How do they feel about picture taking? And it's fun. Uh, we've Brilliant. been the first podcast for a lot of people who've kind of been discovered. And and uh, I love I just love it. and Suzanne is so good. I couldn't do it myself. I'm pretty sure everyone listens to the podcast to listen to her, but it's good. I'll take it. <laughs> you hey, know? you know, right in there, you know, do it. Get it. Get in where you fit in. Right. <laughs> yes. yes. No, and I appreciate awesome, it's man. so good to see. It's so good to see that you've landed this this unbelievably cool position and that there's a future here. And I, I knew you would so be much. doing great things. Every time I talk to you, you're like some other cool placing your your photo career and you know it's a ladder it's a ladder i have no idea where i am on that ladder but i'm just reaching for the next rung <laughs> you know i'm cool. gonna keep going till my arms it. fall off <laughs> so well, no, please this... come out here 
No. I will. I will. I, you know, I've never been to New Mexico and, and now it's, it, it never really crossed my mind to go to New Mexico. I was always thinking, I'm all, I'm a, I'm a dumb American. That's like, you know what, what's wrong with the old Mexico? Why don't I just go? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are all like stuck on the coast. It's very hard to imagine like being on the inside of the coast. It's yeah, but uh, it's fun. I, I really yeah. enjoyed being here much to my surprise. So yes, it. please come out. Love anytime. It. Okay, definitely will do. I'll take you up on that. And congratulations on this book. It's called The Photograph as Haiku by this guy, Michael, that guy, Michael Rubin, <laughs> who wrote it. And uh, if, if so the book, if I want to, if you, someone wants to go buy it right now, they go to your website, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll handle all that. But is it in Amazon? Yeah, is it in all the, all the usual places? Yet. The ebook e will be on Amazon and Apple soon cool. i don't know when but you can currently go to my site and get a, an ebook a paperback or a hardback depending on your mood you know do that go to and, his website uh, and get it don't give bezos any more money go. go to this guy's website absolutely <laughs> yeah, <laughs> perfect. all right my Thank friend you, we'll man. leave it right there yeah great talking to you and we'll talk soon this is twitter